0: What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczak, and this is another episode of Untenured Tracks. This week, we are talking to Dr. Rebecca Scott. Dr. Scott is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at Harvard College. She's on the board of the American Association of Philosophy Teachers, and she's the lead singer of the band Panda Riot. Enjoy the show.
1: And I have a PhD in philosophy. So I finished my PhD um, a couple years, about two years ago. Um, and my research was on a philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas, who's a 20th century um, French phenomenologist. Um, and I worked on his relationship, his, his idea of teaching. Um, in a sort of deeply theoretical philosophical sense Mm -hmm. but as I kind of went through my um, PhD program I really fell in love with the practice of teaching which is why I decided to write about that topic and so recently I've um, been more thinking about scholarship of teaching and learning but um, really what I what I really want to do is to do uh, a philosophy of teaching um, which I think doesn't there's not a whole lot of that out there. Like there's philosophy of education and -hmm. there's some like social science on pedagogy and teaching, Mm -hmm. but I think there's room to have more conversations like theoretical, philosophical conversations about teaching in a way that brings theory and practice together. Not that that doesn't exist at all, but just that's sort of like the space that I want to live in moving forward. So I really like thinking about, um, like I'm always radically rethinking my classes and trying out just just trying to not just challenge the status quo about what we do as teachers and trying out like totally new things and ideas and experimenting in the classroom and just seeing what could happen. Um, and I teach right now, so I got a tenure track job last year. It's my second year at a community college in the suburbs of Chicago called Harper College.
0: So that sounds really cool. So. Um, I think, I think saying the phrase like teaching philosophy probably, I don't know, sets off alarm bells for people because probably a lot of people only think about that in terms of like their job application packet. Right. And the question of, well, what am I supposed to write? (laughs) What is the teaching? What exactly is a teaching philosophy? But it sounds like very clearly that you are, you are way beyond next level with, with thinking about this. So I think I want to ask you about like how you radically transform your classes because, that's something that I I try to do. Like, I have this phobia, I think, of being one of those professors that's lecturing off of the same slides from 20 years ago, (laughs) right? (laughs) And just trying to find new ways to keep students engaged and stuff. And so how how has that, like, gone for you? Or do you have, like, examples of stuff that you've done?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, this semester, so I've been been wanting to – so I started playing Dungeons and Dragons about three or four years ago. Um, so I like came into it a little bit like older as an adult, um, and I've been thinking constantly about like how can I create a learning experience that has that sort of like feeling of storytelling and collaboration and creativity and learning. Like how do you create that kind of experience? And I've been wanting to do role playing games in the classroom. So this semester. My ultimate goal is to do it as a full semester, like a uh-huh. whole class, like an ethics class that just is a role-playing campaign mm-hmm. where students discover texts, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and like, so rather than like assigning the text from the get-go, you know, maybe uh-huh. they like find a chest and they open it and there's this ancient tome <laughs> and it turns out that it's Kant's groundwork from yeah. it's or whatever. Um, and then they, you know, like encounter different scenarios. I haven't like plunged all the way into trying to just do the whole 16 weeks um Mm -hmm. uh, and there are actually there are role-playing games classes the reacting to the past um is a set of tools that exist already um that are more interdisciplinary and sort of history focused but Mm -hmm. anyway so this semester we're doing a four-week ethics simulation at the end of my ethics class where we're going to um so for the first 12 weeks of the class they're going to learn different ethical theories so we're going to do aristotle and uh mencius and then we're going to do kant and mill we're going to do simone de Beauvoir, and at mm-hmm. the end they're going to in groups create characters based on those ethical theories and then we're going to do a four-week Dungeons and dragons um game where they have to make decisions in line with the um theories that they have read about and so they're Um, they'll be assessed based on how well they enact the theories in the game. So that's like one thing that that's just like one example, but just trying to think, um, how do we, uh, like, I think like when we think about what we want students to learn and what kinds of experiences they need to have in order to learn the things that we want them to learn. I've been just trying to think about how to make those experiences more immersive Mm -hmm. and authentic. Um, Because I don't think that the experience of being lectured at is very often the experience that they need to have to learn what we want them to learn.
0: Yeah, I I agree absolutely. And there's no reason to be ashamed of your D and Ness. You have come to the right place. I am surrounded <laughs> I'm right <a> now. Movie. <laughs> no, it's listen, it's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. Um I also have a, a game podcast that I'm I'm like surrounded by D and D stuff right now too. Oh nice. Um and I've also been like similarly kind of obsessing over how to bring it into the classroom because it's such it's such a useful tool and can be so immersive but i've been like struggling i think with how to do it at the college level you know Mm -hmm. like trying to find ways to incorporate like ideas of justice i mean it's such a it's a perfect tool if i could have a class of like six people Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i I don't know
1: well, what I'm going to do is they're going to be in groups, so each group will be responsible for a character, mm-hmm. and so there will be only, there will be like four or five players, and mm-hmm. the rest of the students are going to have um, observation sheets that they fill out and turn in and reflections. So it won't be everybody playing yeah. the game at once. They'll be and then they can rotate who is playing on a given day. Yeah, um, and I'm not going to force anybody to play that doesn't want to play. Yeah, because um, some people will be, I think, hesitant about that. So you can always participate Mm -hmm. by observing yeah um so that's my that's been my solution to that too many student problem but we'll see how it goes i haven't done it yet so it could be a total disaster
0: (laughs) (laughs) no there's no way it's gonna be a disaster it's gonna be fantastic
1: (laughs) it'll be fun for sure (laughs) yeah
0: um yeah it's like i don't know it's i'm so tired of just the standard lecture and and literature review and blue book
2: Mm -hmm. like
0: rinse and repeat And so this this year, at least this upcoming semester, I'm having them write in one class. They're making zines in another Mm -hmm. class. They're going to make memorials to people and just something to try to Mm -hmm. to get them thinking about stuff like creatively. And I'm really hoping that by bringing in like an artistic factor, like maybe Mm -hmm. that gets them more immersed in it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's something else that I've done a lot of like had a lot of creative assignments where I often will just have a totally open ended like, you can write an essay or you can respond to the text we've read in whatever medium you you want. And then they, I have them write an artist statement to go with it as uh-huh. well. So, like, there's still some writing involved and they still have to sort of clarify their mm-hmm. thinking. But um, I find that that's really um, – it actually is a really – I've been thinking a lot about the connection between using creativity and inclusivity, um, because I think that when you offer those, like, other modes of expression, sometimes you get students who might feel alienated from academic discourse to actually feel like it's a space where they mm-hmm. belong and where their ideas are, you know, yeah. really, um, like, where they have something to say.
0: Mm-hmm. So how do you grade that? I mean, because that's something that I've that has kept me from doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I really to to do something where it's like, Answer this question however you want to, or whatever. Do something about this topic yeah. however you want to, but then I have no clue because I, I hate that I think about this in terms of assessment, right? Like it's yeah. it's gross, <laughs> it's so gross. But how how do you grade that?
1: Um. So what I've done, I've like in the past, I've mostly graded the um like I'll have really specific criteria where you where they have to um like in the artist statement they'll they'll need to make specific connections to the text or something mm-hmm. like that or um so i'll have like the the artist statement sort of requires them to the criteria for that mm-hmm. includes most of the the goals so it depends on what you're i think it depends on what it is you're wanting them to learn from it
2: mm-hmm.
1: um because i would think of it as you're in you're responding to the text like you know, you've read the text and now you're responding. And one way to respond is by writing another text, but another way to respond is by making a film or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they have to show how they're responding to the text in their artist statement. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're, what you're wanting to assess. I think Yeah. the other thing I've been moving towards um, specifications grading, um, which is this like pass fail system of grading. So I haven't, I'm just sort of starting to dabble in it, but I think that that could also be a solution. Mm -hmm. Um, potentially to that problem. But that's always, yeah, a challenge. Mm-hmm. But then I think about, like, are our current grading practices any... Like, the way that we currently grade academic papers, is it, like, more fair, more authentic, more informative, more... You know what I mean? Like, like it's, like, it's difficult to grade, but, like, grading is just difficult and fraught with all kinds of oh, problems. Oh, I know. It's the like, worst. In general, it's... I'm not sure that the problems may be different, but no, like... Yeah. they are not, not more problems maybe than the it's traditional. So, it's sports. so bad.
0: <laughs> like <laughs> I've told them like so many times that you you want me grading when I'm happy because <laughs> odds are I'm going to be more forgiving of you. And, and so if one of you does something, like if, if one of you plagiarizes or just turns in a really crappy paper or something, then it's going to make me mad. And then whoever I grade after that like I have to be conscientious of like, all right, I'm really mad at this kid, really frustrated with this kid for what they did. It's not fair to take it out on them on the, on the following student, right? Um, but we know that that happens. It happens all the time in this. And so, even just the idea that that you can fairly grade writing and, and assign like enough writing during the course of a semester that it's going to be meaningful for students, I think, is a big is a big myth. And so I'm moving yeah. to, I'm moving towards ungraded writing assignments. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to tell them on the first day, like, guess what? This is college. <laughs> and not yeah. everything has to be graded. Yeah. And just go from yeah. there.
1: And that's what specifications grading, I think, allows you to do, too, is because then you don't have – you're not trying to decide between, like, an 88 and an 85, oh. which is, like, this, like, meaningless <laughs> distinction anyway. It's yes. just, like – because if you really think about what are the categories you actually have, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? They're pretty – rough like maybe there's three or four yeah. you know and I think that this allows I think it's actually more fair when you have sort of fewer distinctions
2: yeah. Um,
1: because then you're less susceptible to those sort of mm-hmm. like unconscious or just below <laughs> conscious um, <laughs> sorts of you know like effects on your choices
0: yeah um, so I want to ask you about the larger teaching philosophy yeah Ideas. So, what what drew you to that as a philosopher?
1: Um. So I think that, like, I think that. So teaching is really undervalued in in philosophy, and I think like in academia in general. Um, And I think that there are connections to gender. That like there are like lots of different causes for that. Um, But you know the a lot of the attitude of you know is that teaching is. You know something that is you know sort of what you have to do so that you can do what you really want to do, mm-hmm. and like it's not re- that's not real philosophy. And um, there's also in philosophy a really um, sort of snobbishness about applied philosophy in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's getting better, but like a lot of philosophy, you know, philosophers really like to be like super abstract and theoretical, and like to even like you know, <laughs> sully yourself with an your goal It's like you know, and then that's not true across the board, but you know, there is like that strain in philosophy. And I think that sometimes plays into how people think about teaching. But when you actually look at, you know, like the I my I'm mostly like trained in, you know, Western, like in European philosophy, which is sort of like something I'm trying to get better at. Like not just uh the You know, not just uh, being so Eurocentric in my understanding of Mm -hmm. philosophy, but my, like, touchstones when I think about the history of philosophy as I learned it, you know, if you think about Plato, Greek philosophy, I mean, like, Socrates was, like, fundamentally a teacher, and Mm -hmm. Plato wrote dialogues to teach like, mm-hmm. they were meant to be teaching texts. And so, and then, you, you know, medieval philosophy. And there's this huge tradition of teaching being really at the heart of what philosophy is mm-hmm. that has somehow been lost, I think. Yeah. And then also, when you think about the practice of teaching, it raises all kinds of questions about ethics and politics and community and the self and the nature of knowledge and, like, you know, what it means to be a human being. Like, all of those questions are relevant and connected to teaching so like it it's really funny to me you know philosophers like have this really complicated understanding of what knowledge is as an embodied like phenomenon and whatever and then they teach us if people are just like brains and do like so the or, or you know like people have this understanding of the self as like fundamentally intersubjective but then never have their students talk to one another you know like and so it's like the there's this gap, it seems like, and that's yeah. not true of all philosophers, obviously. Yeah. But I think that we're not encouraged in the discipline to think about how our research shows up in the classroom. And so, like, that's kind of what I'm interested in doing is like encouraging philosophers to think about, like, okay, well, here's what you think the self is. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean for how you teach? Or, like, here's what you think knowledge is. So, what does that mean for our so Here's what you think a political community is. Like and so just like basically inviting people to just make the connections
0: so as you were talking i just this is a completely random thing does it bother you when people say incorrectly that their teaching style like invokes the socratic method and it clearly doesn't like to me <laughs> to me like th- like hearing somebody say that they their teaching style is evocative of the socratic method is really a code To mean that Mm -hmm. what they do is stand in front of class and yell at their kids,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) and and they and they use that to be like, "I'm so wise, I'm so enlightened because I berated a 19 year old (laughs) who didn't do the reading." Like that's not what the Socratic method is. Like you're supposed to just be asking them questions and like Mm. like not berating, but just like a a fire hose of questions. Just keep asking them questions and harass Mm -hmm. them with questions. Don't just be like, "Well, you didn't do the reading, so I'm so much better."
1: Yeah, because I think, like, well, I think, well, sometimes Socrates was just, like, an asshole, though, too. Oh, for so sure. There's that, there's oh, that.
0: yeah, no, I mean, he, there was a reason <laughs> but, why they executed him, right? Like, <laughs> but, yeah, so
1: there may, they may be more right than they realize, but for but still doing something bad. But, um, like, but I also think that if you think, I don't know, I mean, depending on your interpretation of Plato or whatever, but I think that, like, for Plato, anyway, like, the goal was always justice. Like, the goal was always, like... The the goal was always like the the reason why Socrates would like embarrass somebody was because they were really powerful mm-hmm. and they were like harming the community. Yeah, like, your student like the <laughs> students are not like they're not, not you know the the, the the that's not the goal is completely different, right? So, yeah. Like, um. So emulating, yeah. So emulating Socrates truly or at least like plato's version of him would always have an eye towards the good and towards justice and i think yeah. sometimes you just get on a power trip rather than <laughs> um you know
0: yeah yeah i think that's more what i was trying to get at like obviously <laughs> socrates made a lot of people mad and he didn't do that because he was this very christ-like figure <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right he was bothering everybody like i get that but i don't know i just the power, the power disparity in teaching, uh-huh. and and how faculty use that sometimes, I think, is really unsettling to uh-huh. me. And like, I think a lot of times, too, at least from like a sociological standpoint, to me, it seems like you're losing the forest through the trees. Right? Like, the American Sociological Association has gone through like ta- has gotten lots of criticism in the last few years for how elitist it's become. Mm -hmm. And this is a discipline that is needed now more than ever, right? But they're still just doing this, like, navel-gazing, incredibly frustrating um, stuff to alienate students and alienate faculty. And, you know, it just reminded me of what you were talking about with, like, Mm -hmm. philosophy teaches you this, but then in practice philosophers are not, like, teaching what they were taught to do if that makes any yeah, sense
1: or what they've come like through their very careful thinking come mm-hmm. to realize about the nature of human beings and knowledge you know they're like and i think that i mean I, like uh yeah i i think that also just the way we think about schooling though in general i mean mm-hmm. i think we just we do what's been done to us also you know and so there's yeah. also this sort of just like repetition and and a lot of times it's not people's fault because there isn't enough instruction in teaching in graduate programs so you know i mean there's also people are really unprepared and so what else are they supposed to do but what they've seen you know so i think that um yeah so i think that there just needs to be more more emphasis on um training teachers too Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i definitely agree um so if you were going to try to like sell somebody on this idea of like experimenting with how their classroom is, how their class is set up, um Ooh. and experimenting with different sorts of assignments and and things like that. How would you how would you try to pitch that to somebody?
1: Um who who am I pitching
0: it to? Um not an administrator. <laughs> so don't worry about that. Not not an accrediting body. I don't know. So Somebody who's been doing things the same way for ten years, we'll mm-hmm. say, who who has who thinks that their course is set and it works and it's good, um, but very clearly, like maybe they're unwittingly engaging in bad practices.
1: Hmm. I guess so. So I would have to know, like, what they care about in a way. But I mean, I think that so what I I mean, so assuming this person cares about their students and cares about (laughs) their student learning and Uh um, enjoys teaching, I guess, Mm -hmm. like if that, I think that maybe would have to be some kind of starting point, but assuming that, yeah. um, Then I think that, I think that one of the things that prevents people is status quo bias and Mm -hmm. like fear of, of changing things. So there's sort of like, once you've done something for a while, you almost assume it works, even if maybe it doesn't. Um, and so I think getting people to realize that the status quo is in itself risky
2: mm-hmm.
1: that like that doing things the way that we are have always done them is itself like there are problems with the status quo, and continuing to do that is is potentially harmful or risky, and so trying something new is not inherently more risky than doing what you've always done if that makes sense like it sounds weird to say that but i think that like um that would be maybe how i might try to try to pitch it is that mm. like to get people to realize that they're already making choices they're make by not by what seems to be not making pedagogical choices mm. they actually are but they're just defaulting to either what they've already done before or what they've seen before or what they think is what you're supposed to do as a teacher and so trying to get them to just realize that they're already um they can't get out of it right like they can't get out of their responsibility in terms of their choices by Mm -hmm. um doing what they've always done
0: yeah so i'm teaching this revolutions class in the fall and one of the things that i want to accomplish is something you just said is to to get them to understand that the status quo can be dangerous. So can you expand on that a little bit? Um, Because I think you can put it much better than I ever could. Uh, I don't
1: know. (laughs) Um, So, well, I guess I've been thinking about this in terms – okay, let me think for a second. Because I've been thinking about this in terms of inclusive Mm -hmm. pedagogy, like thinking about how to make sure that our classes are – yeah, that as many students are as – like preventing our classes from being alienating to certain students. So – by having, I don't know, any, like, so all in all of the ways that students might be alienated. So, okay, let's take the, like, traditional paper assignment versus creative assignment. Okay. So it might seem like the creative assignment is riskier or, mm-hmm. like, is, um, yeah, let's say it seems riskier to do the creative assignment. But with the traditional assignment, maybe you have a couple of students or a lot of students who... Think of themselves as bad writers who have had negative experiences in college and the thought of writing a paper just makes them like feel sick, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're just like going to get it over with as quickly as possible. Or maybe they'll even plagiarize because they're just too stressed out about it or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're going to lose those students or those students aren't going to do very well or they're going to like whatever. And you might have some students. Who are good at playing the academic game, who've always done well, and they, you know, um, mm-hmm. are going to do really well on that assignment. And so maybe you do the creative assignment. And those students who are traditionally prepared might find that really scary and troubling, and they might complain on the teaching evaluations or whatever, which is what makes it seem risky. Yeah. But maybe those students who would have been alienated by the traditional assignment are going to like really flourish because now they get to like write a song, and like they're really good songwriters, and mm-hmm. so those students are now gonna flourish and it's not necessarily at the expense of the well the quote unquote well prepared students like the yeah. traditionally thought of students. Um, but uh, so in that sense like those are two choices that you have the mm-hmm. academic paper versus the creative assignment and they're going to provide possibilities for different kinds of students to flourish in different ways. And that's like a clear choice that you're making Mm -hmm. that should be made deliberately. And if you're just defaulting to the traditional, then you're not actually making that choice. Or you are making that choice, but you're not doing it on purpose. Mm I don't know, does that answer it
0: all? It does. So I I think being more thoughtful, just in general about the types of assignments that we're giving is what you're saying, right? Like almost treating your syllabus like a buffet, right? Like there should be something for for the student who can churn out those papers no problem and, and does learn from them, but there should also be stuff in there for students who, um, maybe are averse to writing. Um, it's not their strong suit, um, for whatever reasons. Right. And then giving them something that's more creative. Um, and I guess a different type of creative creativity um yeah. to try and to also, go with you're
1: asking about the status quo being risky and i guess yeah. that's a way in which the status quo is risky because so many of our educational practices are like privilege preserving practices <laughs> yes. you know like so there's uh so i think that there's a lot of ways in which the status quo obviously benefits the people who are who have done well with this current system so yeah. like so by staying with the status quo, you're continuing to perpetuate a system that has excluded people. Yeah. So to shake it up, it's not going to be perfect every time, but like taking that risk is at least, you know what I mean? Like it's at least um, just recognizing that there's risks in not taking not taking the risk. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I yeah. think the thing. Well, because I think it empowers those students too, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like. I'm thinking in, in terms of, like, cultural differences and language differences and generational differences mm-hmm. and things like that, going away from the from the research paper, Blue Book exam sort of model gives those students a chance to, like, really show other ways that they can contribute to knowledge and contribute mm-hmm. to that whatever that course might be, right? Right, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there, because, I mean, if you think about, like, you know, ways of thinking the ways that we construct knowledge and the ways that knowledge is connected to, um, you know, culture and social, like, like knowledge is something that is, um, you know, socially and historically and culturally constructed, like not intact. like, I don't know, we can get into the whole notion question of objectivity and blah, 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 but at least like to like the ways that, um, that knowledge is like created and maintained and, um, produced happens in certain institutions that mm. tend to exclude certain people and so um and the classroom is one of those spaces and to be able to invite students to bring their expertise like i think that's the thing is like for students to um to realize that they have skills and knowledge and a perspective that like, i don't have as the instructor like i have Students that have children, like, I don't have children, so, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what it's like to be a parent, and they do, and that's something I don't know, and that's relevant for a lot of ethical questions, so if we're Mm -hmm. reading about, you know, um, our obligations to family, like, they have a very different experience of that than I do, that they Mm -hmm. can bring, and so that's, so they bring their perspectives, but then also their skills in the assignments, so if they're really good at songwriting or painting or dance or whatever, to figure mm. out how they can connect that to the material is really, really powerful, I think. And it, it makes the class more inclusive.
0: So when you've done stuff like that, have you ever gotten, have you ever had like students who might be more traditionally oriented in terms of like, not their their politics or anything like that, but just like, I just want to write papers. Have you oh, ever had them um, like panic over having to do that?
1: I've always had a, a traditional option. Okay yeah
0: all right because i Um, i did um a couple of years ago i did an assignment where they had to make memes about the content in the class and some of them like went all out on it and then others were like really kind of apologetic at the end of it and like Mm -hmm. i'm not funny here you go i'm like well but you are because i we joke around in class all the time so i know that you're funny but i i feel like when they had to kind of put their money where their mouth was then they they panicked yeah and
1: what's interesting is that think of all the students that panic with traditional assignments so it's like so it's like students are panicking no matter
0: what
1: yeah (laughs) right like so that's the like status quo thing where it's like which doesn't mean mean that it's good for those students who panic with the meme assignment to be panicking or that you shouldn't accommodate that but just like like that we students are going to struggle like if tradition like if the students who traditionally do well in school are freaking out a little bit Mm-hmm. That that might be okay <laughs> because <laughs> think of all the students that are normally freaking out with the way things were yeah. before, or maybe it's not okay. Like it depends on whether or not you think that discomfort is important for their growth or not. You know, yeah. like, I think sometimes it might be good to push students a little bit out of out of their comfort zone, but then we have to be really careful about thinking that we're the ones that get to decide when they ought to be comfortable or uncomfortable, you know, so that's like yeah. from a sort of paternalistic, you know, perspective. But I think like at the very least having options, um, seems like a step in the right direction.
0: Being like very aware of how we're using our power. I think that's mm-hmm. what, that's what we just come back to. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, you're, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I don't think anybody even listening to this show or this podcast or anything would ever be like, you don't make students uncomfortable. But we oh, yeah. have to. Right. That's what they're there for, whether they realize it or not, right? Like, learning is an uncomfortable process, but finding a way to make that uncomfortable. So, is it uncomfortable because they're being intellectually challenged or is it uncomfortable because they, can't write to save their Mm -hmm. lives but they have all this knowledge but they have no way of communicating it the -hmm. way that they're being asked to communicate it i think are two different things or is it or is it uncomfortable because your deadlines are really strict or um your grading scale is really difficult or or whatever like Mm -hmm. all that part of the mechanics of the course can add to that discomfort which then i think probably disrupts the student's ability to learn
1: Right. Yeah. I think I think like thinking about so one of the things I thinking about is a lot of inclusivity, like a lot of the like discussions about inclusivity talk about removing barriers. And I think that's really important. And I think obviously we should do that. But I also think that I've been reading this uh, philosopher, Jose Medina, who talks about epistemic friction and epistemic resistance. And like this idea that if we don't encounter enough epistemic friction or enough epistemic resistance, then we can't actually develop um, intellectual virtues. So Um, can I
0: interrupt you? So I'm dumb. I'm really dumb. Can you tell me what that means? What is epistemic uh, friction and resistance?
1: Um, It's okay. So um, epistemology (laughs) is the study of knowledge. So epistemic is anything having to do with knowledge. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, So epistemic friction would be, like uh or epistemic resistance would be encountering resistance uh having to do with um like okay so maybe an example is easier um so let's say a student like really believes in that um evolution is wrong and Mm -hmm. that god created the earth and it's 600 years old or whatever Mm -hmm. and then they take um, a biology class and they're confronted with the theory of evolution and Mm. evidence and a professor who you know is arguing for evolution so they're encountering epistemic friction epistemic resistance because their beliefs are being challenged or they're coming into conflict with another with someone else's beliefs okay and so that friction can be internal like it can be self-produced or it can come from the outside and you can think of a whole landscape of it but i think that like we often think about removing barriers which we should but i actually think the better way to think of it is like so students need to encounter friction. They need to encounter resistance and not just students, but us too. Like in the discussion about discomfort, we also have to think about our own discomfort and the need yeah. for us to be also uncomfortable. We're not just imposing discomfort. <laughs> like like yes. we just sprinkle discomfort around. Like we are like part of the, the discomfort the fairies to to here today. Think, about think of our own, you know, the need to make ourselves uncomfortable. Yes. You know, um, But so yeah, so I think that like, the question is like, is this discomfort, like you were saying, like, is this discomfort productive for what we're trying to do in the class? Or is it not? So Mm -hmm. if a student feels alienated from academic spaces, because they can't imagine themselves being represented, you know, like if, if a student thinks that all philosophers are dead white men, for instance, or whatever, like, that's a kind of friction or resistance that is not helpful to their learning. Like if, if that's like something that's preventing a student from being able to imagine themselves in being successful in an in, a, in, in an academic space, then that's mm. a bad kind of friction. But if it's a kind of friction that is like um, pushing them to see from another perspective, that's like a good kind of friction or a good kind of discomfort. So like thinking about why, what is the cause of discomfort and is it productive or unproductive discomfort?
0: That's it's so like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's so cool I'm, I'm I don't am i know you blew my mind <laughs> I, I'm speechless I'm a bad interviewer because I don't have anything to follow up with that like that's that's great and I, I think that that kind of sums up a lot of what we've been talking about right is that um, just thinking about how we are making making students uncomfortable and how we're using our power and everything um,
1: and being uncomfortable with students maybe I would reframe it that way that we are not just making students uncomfortable but we are sharing in, we are participating in an experience that makes us uncomfortable
0: yeah and I've, I think I've tried to do that I'm definitely going to try to do it more
1: cool <laughs> me <So>. too <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I think that's a good place to end um, thank yeah. you so much for your time
1: yeah yeah thank you so much this was really fun